0: Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the forgiveness that flows from the cross, from the grace that flows from the heavenly throne, and for the new life you offer us. We pray for grace and courage to receive it, and as we receive it, to share it. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen.
1: This King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned one-tenth of everything. His name in the first place means king of righteousness. Next, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. See how great he is. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect tithes from the people, that is, from their kindred, although these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not belong to their ancestry, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal and the other by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for the people received the law under this priesthood, what further need would there have been to speak of another priest arising according to the order of Melchizedek, rather than one according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It is even more obvious when another priest arises resembling Melchizedek, one who has become a priest, not through a legal requirement concerning physical descent, but through the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There is on the one hand, the abrogation of an earlier commandment because it was weak and ineffectual, for the law made nothing perfect. There is on the other hand, the introduction of a better hope through which we approach God. This was confirmed with an oath, For others who became priests took their office without an oath, but this one became a priest with an oath because of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Accordingly, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests, those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.
0: All right, beautiful reading of Hebrews 7. You know, I want to go back to the question of of why do we choose the book of Hebrews? And aside from The practical nature of we've been doing Bible study together for for five years and we're running out of books of the Bible. Uh, There's also something wonderful about the question that makes me present to something that I believe that we have in common with the community that this was written to and also a place where we're very different. And I think finding that place of commonality and difference is going to be really, really important. First, where are we different? You and I are heirs of an orthodox tradition of Christianity that has been worked out with a lot of struggle, a lot of time, with a lot of councils of the church. And so, you know, uh, we're kind of raised... In the church, or we come in as a convert, and the Nicene Creed is so well packaged and put together, it feels as if it just fell straight down from heaven. When in reality, all the earliest theologians, St. Paul, the author of John's Gospel, and the author of Hebrews, for instance, are really trying to work out. They're the early adopters, the innovators, trying to work out who this Jesus was and what it meant that he rose from the dead. And so, notice how Hebrews is just going to great pains to talk about how Jesus is a different sort of priest, how it's a different sort of law, how He's higher than the angels, how uh, the old covenant sacrificial system only points to the sacrifice that he made. And this is really being worked out for the very first time for the people for whom it's heard. Uh, These are people who have been catechized Uh, We know that from the previous chapter, whenever the author says, let's leave behind the basic teachings of laying on of hands and baptisms, it's because that was their baptismal curriculum. And so they are really kind of trying to work out who Jesus is for the very first time. And so it's just good to be reminded of that. But the place where I think that we have a lot in common with the people uh, to whom this was written, it brings to mind something that New Testament Scholar Thomas Long wrote about Hebrews, and he says that the author is a preacher and a pastor laboring to provide care and comfort to a congregation of people worn down by a religion that does not seem to heal, fatigued by the burdens of a conscience that will not be cleansed, and exhausted by a Jesus who seems unable to help. Now, that might be a little dramatic to describe uh, the psyche of the the everyday person who comes into St. Michael's, but one of the things I'm really clear on uh, as a preacher and pastor is that care and comfort to people who are worn down, who need healing, who are fatigued, whose conscience can't fully be cleansed, people who are often exhausted, that that really does seem to be often what we bring to church and that a word of grace needs to be spoken into that situation. And that the whole aim of Hebrews is to speak that word of grace. And so whenever we get all these like technical comparisons of how King Melchizedek is different from the priests of Aaron and Levi. Please understand that the author of Hebrews is not trying to speak to our head, but rather to speak to our heart. And so who was King Melchizedek? You remember in Genesis chapter 14, Abram and his nephew get in a little trouble. Lot is kidnapped and Abram has to go rescue uh, his nephew Lot out of slavery and after that great exodus, that great defeat King Melchizedek comes and blesses Abram uh, and celebrates the liberation from slavery with a meal of bread and wine. That's the story. And of course, every Sunday, what do we do? We celebrate how Jesus has rescued us from slavery, and we celebrate that with the memorial and the sacrament of bread and wine. And, And so what's happening here with King Melchizedek being differentiated from the priests of Levi is that what the author is trying to do is not to make some scholarly argument, but he's trying to impress upon people and their heart that Jesus is a priest who has already done all the work that needs to be done, right? So remember what Hebrews said a few chapters back about how God's works have been finished from the foundation of the world. There's a sense in which the author of Hebrews wants his flock to know hey, it is finished. There is a priest who lives to pray for you. You're safe, you're forgiven, you're free. Let's celebrate that exodus with bread and wine. And so kind of getting into his argument about the descendants of Levi, for those of you who don't know the full story, if you read Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, uh, essentially the first priest is Aaron, who is Moses's brother, Uh, They were of the tribe of Levi, and all of Aaron's descendants were set aside to be priests for the people, and the other tribes, the other 11 tribes, would pay them tithes. They would support the priesthood. And so this whole argument here about how the earthly priests, how they used to receive tithes, I think it's the funniest argument in scripture how the Levitical priests, they actually paid tithes because they were still inside of Abraham and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. I don't know if you can follow that logic or not, but the whole point again being made here is that the sort of priest Melchizedek was, which points to Jesus, he's a greater sort of priest, someone who can, as verse 11 says, make people perfect. Verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, there wouldn't be a need for another priest. And so the point being made here is not that what God established with Aaron and the Levites was bad or unholy. It was good. It was a gift. God entrusted his people with this priesthood, but only that it was a pointer, that it was never meant to make us perfect. And to be really clear about what this word perfect means, it doesn't mean perfect moral behavior, right? Whenever you think about being perfect, you think about getting your act together, you think about all those silly mistakes you make, not making them anymore. That's not really what perfection means because remember earlier Hebrews talks about how we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. And so whatever this perfection is, It's not whenever you cease to be fully weak and fragile and vulnerable. It's pointing to something else, I think. But the point is, is that whatever perfection is, the Levitical priesthood was never set up to do it, and that another priest, another intercessor, another mediator is needed in order to bring about in us the desired end that god created us for and that's really what the word perfection means it's tied to the greek word telos which means end uh, or kind of finality it, it, it points to a certain direction in which our life is moving and and basically the argument is that the whole system of law and priests through conventional religion It's not going to get us to our desired end. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that, which is why he's described as the author or the pioneer of our salvation in a previous chapter. So notice what it says in verse 12, when there's a change in priesthood, There is a change in law. So two verses from Paul's writings come to mind here, one from Romans, one from Galatians. The Galatians verse is from chapter five when it talks about the fruit of the spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, and self-control. And then Paul says, against such things, there is no law. And I think part of what Paul's doing in Galatians is basically saying only the Holy Spirit can produce inside of us the inner change that God longs to work. That what the law can do is modify our exterior behavior. So whenever there's a law, whether it's a law from the government or a law from God, or if I just kind of give you something you should do or must do, or I tell you what to do, there's only three responses you can have to me giving you a law or a should or a must or an ought. Uh, you can rebel, right? You can, you can just throw a fit and rebel, say no. Uh, you can retreat and freeze and remain silent uh, or you can comply. But whenever you comply with a law, we always do so from a place of fear, right? So we might have our behavior modified but our heart remains fearful. And so it's not that the Old Testament law couldn't modify behavior. It did that just fine, but it couldn't reach the heart. And what Hebrews is pointing to is God reaching the heart. The other verse comes from Romans. You all might remember this from our study of Romans where Paul writes, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit same idea god has done what the law could not do and so it's not that the law that god entrusted the people of israel with was bad it was a gift but with respect to the perfection or the inner change that hebrews is pointing us to to go to verse 19 the law was weak and ineffectual. To say that the law was weak and ineffectual is not to say that it was bad, not to say that it was a mistake. It just was unable to do what only the Holy Spirit and the high priesthood of Jesus could do. And and, and in a sense, what Hebrews is doing is taking its place in that larger prophetic tradition of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where uh, the prophets would say something along the lines of, a day is surely coming, says the Lord, When I will give you a new heart, I will put my spirit within you, I will remove your heart of stone, I will give you a heart of flesh, right? The prophets always talk about God giving us a new heart. The law can't give us a new heart. The law can only modify our exterior behavior. And the perfection or the wholeness or the fullness that Hebrews is pointing to uh, is trying to go to something deeper than that. Okay. So That's what this whole business about Jesus being a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek is about. It's not a priesthood that's about exterior laws. It's a priesthood that's associated with rescuing someone from slavery and celebrating with bread and wine. And so whenever we get to verse 19 and it says the law made nothing perfect, there is on the other hand, the introduction of a better hope through which we approach God I want you to hear this as the first listeners of this sermon would have heard it, right? They're not quite sure who Jesus is, hence all the business about him being better than angels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, They're a little tempted to maybe revert back to a rabbinic form of Judaism. They are scared and persecuted. They don't feel fully forgiven. And so what the author is trying to do is to say, hey, you are forgiven, you are forgiven, you are forgiven you can approach God, you can approach God, you can approach God. You've been saved, you've been saved, you've been saved. He's trying to basically awaken people to the amazing shift that has happened in their relationship with God in and through their baptism. And because this community has already been catechized and baptized, we talked about that last week, they have been baptized into what? They've been baptized into a better hope. And a hope, that according to verse twenty one and twenty two is tied to the Lord's word to His promise. The Lord has sworn; the Lord will not change His mind. You know, part of what the author is trying to get these people to get is that God has promised; God keeps His promises. Nothing else is is, is needed. When whenever the Lord says He's going to do something, He does it. And so, what He wants His community to do is to uh, to rely on God's promise and to know the good news. Verse 25, that Jesus is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so what the author is saying is that Jesus never stops praying for you. Jesus never stops whispering your name to his father. I mean, these are all metaphors, right? It's not like God has amnesia and, and needs a constant reminder, but, but, but Jesus is always in the presence of God advocating for you, presenting you uh, to God as his own brother. The author is trying to awaken our imagination to really just uh, the grace of the gospel. And so verse 27, unlike other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices time and time again. First for his own sins, and then for those of his own people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. So two things here. One is again, you kind of go back to the priesthood of Aaron. I mean, it's just it's it's repetitive. You you keep offering sacrifices. You're cleansed. You sin. You go back to the priest. You're cleansed. You sin. You go back to the priest. It's like going to confession, right? I mean, if you have a very Roman Catholic understanding that. Uh, only a priest can forgive sins. And that once you go to confession and receive absolution, you're forgiven, but then you kind of go back home and you do something bad or you make a big mistake, then your soul's dirty again. So what do you have to do? You have to go back to the priest. I mean, that's a very Roman Catholic understanding of the sacrament. It's not one that we as Anglicans have, but there are some Roman Catholics who have it. And in fact, uh, that's what led to the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther. He literally, he'd wake up at two in the morning, remembering some sin. He'd go track down his priest to confess. I mean, he, he never had a clean conscience. And the author basically says, that's a bunch of baloney. There's already been one sacrifice. It's, it's total. It's complete. It's sufficient. But the main thing I want you to take away is that great line this he did once for all when he offered himself. So we've already covered the once for all piece, but the big grace here is that God has offered himself. Like, why is it that we don't need to be scared? Why do we not need to be afraid? Because God has offered himself. God has not offered the law. God has not offered an angel as a mediator. God has not offered a, a priestly system mediated through Aaron and the Levites. He's He's offered himself. And it's really that kind of punch of the heart that the author wants his community to know because he wants them to relax. He wants them to know that they're okay and he wants them to feel forgiven. And uh, even though he does it in a way that's a little technical with all this talk about Melchizedek, I can tell you as a pastor, uh, that's what pastoral care is. That's That's what preachers do right? They they try to lighten the load. Um, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are tired and carrying heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. It is that rest, that relieving of the heavy burden that the author of Hebrews is most interested in.